Start your morning with the CNN Daily News Briefing. In just three minutes, we'll tell you about the stories that are making headlines around the world. To listen, tell your smart speaker to play the CNN Daily News Briefing or find us in your favorite podcast app. Good evening. We are in a good place with this pandemic. A good place. We've done a good job. How's that sound to you? Does that sound like reality, that we're in a good place? Because those are the words the president of the United States today, even as the numbers and his own experts, scientists with decades of experience, say other. The president says we are in a good place with the pandemic. Those are his actual words. I, I didn't actually believe it when I first heard it, but it's on tape. He was asked by Greta Van Susteren about Dr. Anthony Fauci's assessment that the country is still, quote, knee deep in the first wave of coronavirus. Here's what he said. Well, I think we are in a good place. I disagree with him. We've done a good job. I think we're actually, uh, we are going to be in two, three, four weeks. By the time we next speak, I think we're going to be in very good shape. So this is a good place to be in the pandemic, in case you're wondering. And soon we're going to be in a very, very good shape, he said. The president spoke of Florida and California, states that became, in his words, hot. But even there, he said, quote, we're going to be very, very good very soon. The same president who told Diamond and Silk that the virus would miraculously disappear by April, the one who keeps saying that we have the best testing, keeping them honest, it's remarkable how sunny things can look from inside a biological bunker at the White House, where everyone has to wear masks and get tested just to come in contact with you. It's a bunker so secure, apparently not even the sound of your own leading experts can penetrate it. The president says we're in a good place. Dr. Anthony Fauci said this just yesterday. The current state is really not good in the sense that, as you know, we had been uh, in a situation where we were averaging about 20,000 new cases a day. Two days ago, it was at 57,500. So within a period of a week and a half, we've almost doubled the number of cases. So, of course, the president doesn't have to take it from the nation's most trusted infectious disease expert. He could listen to other top members of his own virtually invisible coronavirus task force who also acknowledge the situation today on a call with state governors. This is Vice President Mike Pence and Dr. Deborah Birx. Uh, have seen a rise in cases uh, as of this morning. I think, Dr. Birx, you want to give a brief summary, we have nine in the District of Columbia with rising cases combined with uh, rising percent of Clearly, there is all significant issues in California, especially Florida and Arizona, growing issues in South Carolina and Georgia. And then just I want to really put the alert out there of um, both rising percent positive and rising cases in Oklahoma, Iowa, Washington State, D.C., and Montana, along with our concerns of increasing case numbers in Louisiana, Nevada, North Carolina, and Tennessee. Yeah, that sounds, sounds good. I mean, that sounds like a good place to be, right? California, Texas, Florida, Arizona, South Carolina, Georgia, Oklahoma, Iowa, Washington State, Washington, D.C., Montana, Louisiana, Nevada, North Carolina, and Tennessee. That's 14 states in the District of Columbia. A good place. By the way, what you heard the vice president say on that call, acknowledging the rising cases and percentage of positives, he's also, without really actually saying it, acknowledging that when he said this just a couple of weeks ago, he wasn't being honest about what was already happening in states the administration had pushed to reopen. We slowed the spread. We flattened the curve. We saved lives. We slowed the spread. We flattened the curve. 
we save lives. That was from the last coronavirus briefing late last month. He was talking in the past tense, you might have noticed, but he wasn't then acknowledging the rise in cases that was already happening. Now he has no other choice, but the president wants you to believe everything is good. And today he talked about forcing schools to open and pretending that governors or school officials might be reticent to open because they think it helps them politically. And we hope that most schools are going to be open. Uh, we don't want people to make political statements or do it for political reasons. They think it's going to be good for them politically, so they keep the schools closed. No way. Much going to put pressure on uh, governors and everybody else to open the schools, to get them open. And uh, it's very important. The man whose every decision is based on what will get him reelected, what will energize his base and appeal to people's most primal fears, is saying that governors and school officials don't want schools open because of politics, because it benefits them politically. We are so deep down into a well of lies, it is hard to even realize how dark this is. There's no political benefit in keeping schools closed keeping kids upset and parents angry and parents unable to work because their kids are stuck at home. Oh yeah, politically, that's gonna serve you really well by doing that. Right now, outside of a very few states, the entire country is dealing with the consequences going too fast, too soon. And the president's urging, at the president's direction, as Vice President Pence always says, but without his leadership on how to do it safely, without his basic encouragement to wear masks and social distance while opening. As of tonight, infections are rising in 31 states, holding steady in 15 and dropping in just four. And comparing states that rushed to reopen to those that didn't only underscores the point. Here's New York in green, Florida in pink. New York worked hard to get its cases down, has been cautious about reopening. Florida reopened quickly and now new cases rising. The number of people being hospitalized growing and in counties across the state, intensive care units operating at 100% capacity, no beds available. Yet against that grim backdrop, Florida's governor today ordered schools to reopen for in-person learning in the fall. And the president praised him for it, of course, even as he said that plans to hold the Republican National Convention in Jacksonville are now, quote, flexible. And even as new modeling from the University of Washington today forecasts more than 208,000 people in this country may be dead of COVID-19 by Election Day, which the president still does not seem to think is all that bad because he is still repeating the same falsehoods as ever about testing and mortality, which fell for a while, but is once again, sadly, sickeningly ticking up. Therefore, we have more cases. Because we're doing more testing, we have more cases. If we did half the testing, we'd have far fewer cases. But uh, people don't view it that way. What, what they have to view, though, is if you look at the chart, and maybe Mike has it, but uh, we looked at it before, if you look at the chart of deaths, uh, deaths are way down. So what we want to do is we want to get our schools open. We want to get them open quickly, beautifully in the fall. Dr. Fauci calls the mortality claims, quote, a false narrative. And in any case, those numbers, they've begun rising again, more than 600 fatalities today compared to about 250 a day over the weekend. But the vice president, who briefly acknowledged reality today, then nodded, of course, and agreed and praised the president for his leadership, because that's what he does. And he tried to spin the president's lie about 99% of COVID cases being totally harmless. Here's how the vice president attempted to reinterpret that lie. The American people know President Trump uh, is an optimist. He believes in this country, but he also believes the American people deserve to have the whole story. Uh, what does that even mean? The president doesn't, 
doesn't want you to know the whole story. If he wanted you to know the whole story, he wouldn't have stopped the virus task force daily briefings. He wouldn't have silenced Dr. Fauci and others from appearing on television like he used to. He wouldn't claim that we are in a good place. President Trump is not an optimist like the vice president is claiming, who just believes so gosh darn much in our country. He isn't an optimist at all. He's a fabulist. And the vice president can call a lie a hope, but it doesn't make it so. It's lipstick on a pig, Mr. Vice President. The American people, they do deserve the whole story. But they deserve the whole truth as well. In a moment, two public health experts in two hard-hit states, Texas and Florida, but first more on the big picture from CNN's Nick Watt. Oops. Big techs taking a break for the first time since World War II. The Texas State Fair just canceled as the military sends medical personnel to San Antonio to help. The four days leading up to the 4th of July uh, combined uh, were the four deadliest days uh, that we've had. My concern is that we may see greater fatalities going forward. In Florida, ICUs in 43 hospitals are now full. Especially we need to look at our younger population that we know uh, had a tremendous spike in their, in their positivity rate, which in turn has infected other people. Florida still won't reveal how many COVID-19 patients they have in hospitals, despite the governor's claims today. All the data that goes into this is, is all available. Spreadsheet from that data, Governor, it is not available. But Miami-Dade County does release COVID-19 hospital numbers, and they're up 90% in just two weeks. Still, the state just issued an order for schools to reopen next month. There's pushback. We can't go on this on this path of putting our teachers in this petri dish of, of danger. I will not reopen our school system August 24th if the conditions are what they are today. In California, the state's capital now closed indefinitely after at least five lawmakers tested positive. Test lines are getting longer. All of this just makes it so much harder to manage this disease. Quest Diagnostics says last month results were taking two to three days. Now it's four to six. Quick results are key in effectively isolating the infected. The cases are rising so rapidly that we cannot even do contact tracing anymore. Undiagnosed silent spreaders might be responsible for around half of all cases, according to one new study. And as cases climb, nearly half of states now slowing or rolling back, reopening. If they keep moving up, we're going to dial back if we have to. And it's the last thing any of us want. And Nick Watt joins us now. So the Trump administration made good on its previous threats, began its formal withdrawal from the World Health Organization today. They say it'll take place finally in 2021. Uh, when is the, the withdrawal complete? And, and is it, I assume it's irreversible, depending on the next election? Right. So, Anderson, a State Department official confirms to us that the letter was sent to the U.N. and the U.S. will formally leave the World Health Organization in a year from now, July 6th. 2021. Now, President Trump has long criticized the WHO, saying that they've, you know, enabled China's cover-up of the origins of COVID-19. But, you know, plenty of lawmakers both sides of the aisle have also been critical of the WHO, but they're also very critical of the president for leaving the organization in the middle of a 
pandemic. Um, Senator Robert Menendez uh, tweeted this afternoon, this won't protect American lives or interests. It leaves Americans sick and America alone. But yes, a UN diplomat confirms to us that this is reversible. Remember, it doesn't kick in for another year, so long after the November election. And just one more ad, Anderson. I've just seen it cross now. The U.S. has set a new record for the number of COVID cases in a single day, 55,274 today. Yeah. Uh, Nick Watt, I appreciate it. Thanks very much. As Nick just said, uh, that is breaking news. Uh, The single today, the single highest day of COVID infections, 55,274 cases reported. That breaking just moments ago. Joining us now, Dr. Peter Hotez, Dean of the National School of Tropical Medicine at Houston's Baylor College of Medicine. Also, Dr. Aileen Marty, infectious disease specialist at Florida International University. Dr. Hotez, uh, I mean, a grim record the record number, more than 55,000 new COVID infections today. You hear President Trump saying we're in a good place. Is this a good place? Anderson, today we broke that record, 55,000. In two days, we're going to break that record again. And then in two days from then, we'll break the record again. And then we'll break it again. This is, there's nothing to stop this train. There's nothing to stop this steep acceleration uh, in the number of cases. So, and next week we'll have this conversation, we'll be over 60,000 cases. So we have to really reconcile with the fact that this is not going, it's not even just a question of not going well, this is a public health crisis. This is a public health disaster. People are piling into hospitals and emergency rooms in multiple states. We're starting to see happen now, Anderson, multiple states in the South, is the, the, the healthcare staff are getting exhausted. It's exhausting putting taking on and off PPE every day uh, and multiple times a day. Uh, a lot of the hospital staff across these states now are getting sick. So we're starting to see staff problems. It's not just a question. Everyone's focusing on the number of hospital beds that we have or ICU beds. It's not just that. There are staff. We're starting to see the beginning of staff shortages because everybody's getting sick. This is a full-blown public health crisis. We have to recognize it and we have to start dealing with it. Dr. Marty, um, you know, the White House, uh, you know, Pre- uh, Vice President Pence is now saying that the President Trump was being a, an optimist when he falsely claimed 99 percent of COVID-19 cases are harmless. It certainly doesn't send a good message to anybody about how seriously they should take this virus if, if people are being told 99 percent are harmless. I'm wondering just what you're in terms of what you're seeing in Florida doesn't seem like harmless is is certainly uh, the accurate word. What is the situation that you are seeing? What we're seeing is from the 26th of um, June till today, uh, we've doubled the number of COVID admissions. We've doubled the the number of COVID ICU beds. We are stressed tremendously. We are exhausted. And uh, a very significant percentage of the patients that we're seeing and admitting to hospital are younger people. So it isn't just old folks that are ending up in our hospitals and ICUs. And Dr. Marty, what you, uh, from what I understand in Florida, what you are seeing in, in terms of when, when they do contact tracing on these cases, what is the focus of the spread? I understand it, it's kind of family interactions, groups, parties, social interactions. Is that correct? That's what we've been able to determine with the tools we have. Um, one of the problems that we have 
for managing the outbreak is that our contact tracing questionnaire doesn't give us the finesse to identify uh, exactly many of the uh, original sources of disease because they're not even part of the questionnaire. So what we do know is that uh, a very significant portion is, as you say, from personal parties, personal gatherings, uh, graduation parties, et cetera. Those are things we are able to determine because that's what's in the questionnaire. We're trying to change that so we can get better data and therefore a better uh, action, because <laughs> that's what we do contact tracing for, to do the right action. This is an obvious question, but w why is there a bad questionnaire for contact tracing at this point? We're four months or more into this pandemic. So uh, the, the entire process is managed out of Tallahassee, and the way that we do our contact tracing for this tailored for this disease and the reality that we know that this is an infection where a very significant portion of individuals are transmitting when they are pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic. And the questions don't ask uh, uh, details of where individuals uh, were in certain situ situations, nor is it demanded that individuals have to answer, which they really need to. Um, and whereas I don't want to force anybody to do anything, the reality is is we, we need to help them, let them help us to right. help them back. Uh, Dr. Hotez, I mean, it, it's um, the idea that we're so far into this pandemic and, and I mean, the good doctor there is saying the, the very questionnaires that they're asking don't even get to the critical information about this pandemic. And I know we talked, you and I talked last night, you're saying at, at this point in Texas, there's so many cases, contact tracing may not even be possible because it's just too many cases. That's right. We, we just don't know if the measures that have been put in place in the states where the cases are accelerating the most, mostly in the South, uh, across the South, but now we're starting to see cases climb steeply in Tennessee and the northern parts of the Midwest, whether the measures being undertaken are, are going to be adequate. And this is the problem with the lack of strategy by the U.S. government. We are basically leaving it to the states to figure it out. We'll provide backup support, but the states just don't have the horsepower. They need the full force of the federal government behind them. And, and it's clear that we're not so far seeing significant and substantive enough action either from the executive branch, uh, the White House or the agencies we have to start looking at what other options that we have. And there's some, is there something Congress can mandate to get a federal response uh, underway? And this is something that I'm hoping to start looking at as well, because business as usual is not working. And it's not a question of waiting for regime change in, in, in November. We, there's going to be too much damage done, permanent damage, if we don't intervene over the next few weeks. Now, mm. is, now is a critical period for us. Yeah. Um, Dr. Hotez, Dr. Marty, I really appreciate your time and, and uh, I wish you the best in, in the battle ahead. Coming up next, more on the new projection on more than 208,000 fatalities and the one simple step that could save tens of thousands of lives. Later, what the book the president did not want you to see reveals about his character, according to a psychologist who wrote it, and because she's also his niece, happened to see it all up close. Symptoms of overactive bladder, or OAB, may be bothersome. 
As many as 46 million Americans, 40 years of age or older, have reported symptoms of OAB. I got to the point where I was constantly having to plan my outings around being able to go to the bathroom. Felt like my bladder was calling the shots. Many people like her decided enough was enough. It was time to talk to a doctor. We spoke to a few of them to hear their stories in their own words. Listen in at oabmed.com and hear how they discovered Mirbetric Mirabegron. Mirbetric is a prescription medicine for adults used to treat OAB symptoms of urgency, frequency, and leakage. Do not take if you have a known allergic reaction to Mirbetric or its ingredients. Mirbetric may increase blood pressure. Tell your doctor right away if you have trouble emptying your bladder or have a weak urine stream. Mirbetric may cause serious allergic reactions like swelling of the face, lips, throat, or tongue, or trouble breathing. If experienced, stop taking and tell your doctor right away. Mirbetric may interact with other medicines. Tell your doctor if you are taking thioridazine, melaril, and melaril S, flecainide, tambacore, propafenone, rhythmol, digoxin, linoxin, or sulafenacin succinate vesicare. Tell your doctor if you have liver or kidney problems. Common side effects include increased blood pressure, common cold or flu symptoms, sinus irritation, dry mouth, urinary tract infection, bladder inflammation, back or joint pain, constipation, dizziness, and headache. See our ad in Reader's Digest magazine or call 1-855-697-2387. Hear real stories about how Mirbetric can help OAB symptoms at oabmed.com and ask your doctor if it could help you. That's oabmed.com. As we first reported before the break, this country has just reached a terrible new high for reported cases of coronavirus, 55,274 in a single day. And as Dr. Peter Hotez just said, quote, there's no way to stop this train. In addition to that, there's new modeling tonight from the University of Washington's Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. It projects more than 208,000 total COVID fatalities by the 1st of November. Joining us now is the Institute Director, Dr. Chris Murray. Dr. Murray, thanks for being with us. Your, your forecast, what, what factors this time are affecting those numbers the most? Well, the big increases that we're seeing in Florida, Arizona, Texas, California, we're also pretty concerned about South Carolina. We're seeing some increases in turning the corner a little bit in Ohio. So that's one factor. The other factor is school openings that we expect in August and September. That's going to increase contact rates on current trajectories. And then, you know, the seasonality that'll start to kick in in September and October. All those come together to give us those numbers uh, for the 1st of November. So school, just schools, kids going back to school, if that happens, that means more people will die. Well, it's the kids going back to school, but it's all the other stuff around school. It's all the interaction that happens when kids go to school. We've seen it in the mobility data back in March when school closures came in. Not just kids have less contact, but their parents, they're more likely to go to work when kids are at school. There's all the after-school activities and interactions around school. Taken as a package, that has a big contributor to how much contact people have, unless, of course, we're very careful about how schools' openings are managed. I mean, your figure now goes up to November. Is it still your expectation that once we're in November, December, January, that then there is, uh, I mean, there's the seasonal flu, uh, and then there's likely to be a resurgence of just seasonally for COVID? That's certainly our very strong expectation. So we think that it'll be worse in November, December, January. Those will probably be the, the worst period for the pandemic in the US, if our understanding right now, it holds true. Um, how much 
do your projections take into account whether or not state and local governments reimpose stay-at-home orders or business closures or mandatory mask wearing? Because obviously some political leaders, you know, are, are wary of doing that. Some are, may have to consider that. Well, we try to keep on top of the closures as they come in, and then we try to build those into the models. So since we know that if people would have wear masks, if we can get it up to that Singapore level of you know 95% of people wearing masks through, for example, mandates, that can reduce the death toll by November by about 45,000 deaths. So if states start doing that, then our forecasts will definitely come down, uh, and we, we try to keep on top of that. So wait, if if how what percentage of the population started actually wore masks? You said forty five thousand people would would who might die would survive. What what's the percentage? So when you can get people up to what Singapore has achieved on mask wearing, which is ninety five percent of people wearing a mask when they're out in public spaces at risk of transmission, that's where we see that we can save forty five thousand American lives. It's amazing that you can look at just that one factor and equate that to 45,000 people being alive who otherwise would die. I mean, that's, that's an extraordinary thing. What is the current, if not, 95%, obviously, that's Singapore level. Uh, Singapore obviously has much more draconian uh, uh, legislation and, and rule than the U.S. What is, the, do you know what the current um, percentage of people who wear masks outside is? Well, the percentage of masks varies a lot. So up in the Northeast, where, you know, the pandemic was very bad, mask use was very high. Uh, it was up in the 70% range uh, or even 80%. And then mask use is really low in some of the states that haven't seen a big epidemic yet. Uh, we also do see that when states put in mandates, we're starting to see an uptick in mask use uh, when they do. So, you know, this is within the, the power of states to put those mandates and local government in place. You've been tracking the data on this virus from the very beginning. We've been talking since the beginning of this outbreak. Based on the data, did the U.S. ever actually experience an end to the first wave? Is this still the first wave? I don't think, you know, people talk about waves when they're thinking about like the, the Spanish flu or the flu season, where basically transmission goes to zero. And so there's a very distinct first wave and then a next wave. Like, But COVID's not behaving like that. We're not seeing anywhere going down to truly zero. The, you know, there's a few exceptions like New Zealand. But in general, what we're seeing is the transmission went down for a period didn't get down to zero, and now it's bouncing back in many places. So it's it's sort of an artificial distinction. Uh, we're, we're just in the middle of active transmission. It's expanding in a lot of states, and it's likely to get worse. Hmm. Dr. Murray, I appreciate you being with us again. Thank you very much. Thanks for all your work. With the projected COVID-19 death toll now stretching into November, vaccine research is, by all accounts, becoming ever more paramount. Coming up, I'll talk with a vaccine researcher who's not only focused on the short term, but what he calls the, the long war ahead. Operation Warp Speed, the federal government's effort to fast track a coronavirus vaccine, today awarded its largest single contract so far. It's a $1.6 billion contract with a company called Novavax. The company's CEO told CNN it hopes to have a vaccine on the market by early next year 
And it's not the only company to have received grants from the government, and scientists warned that marketing a safe and effective vaccine is obviously a very difficult process. To help me guide us, help us all guide us through the maze is Dr. Kayvon Majarid, who's a researcher on the Operation Warp Speed team and the director of emerging infectious diseases at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. Of research. Uh, Dr. Majarid, thank you so much for, for all your work and for being with us. How optimistic are you that a vaccine will be discovered, that will work, and that we'll be able to get, get out to people? And what sort of a timetable do you think is realistic? Uh, thank you for having me on. Uh, it's a, a pleasure to speak with you tonight. I th I'm very optimistic that we will have a vaccine in the near future, uh, a safe vaccine. How effective that vaccine will be, uh, time will tell. And I don't think there's going to be just one vaccine. There'll be multiple vaccines that we try to get across the finish line as quickly as possible. And we may need multiple iterations of the vaccine going forward, season to season. Explain why the vaccine that you're working on is potentially unique. Right. So uh, I work at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, which is the largest and oldest research institute in the Department of Defense. And we've been working on uh, other viruses and other like MERS. And one of our approaches has been to develop a vaccine that attacks all coronaviruses within that virus family. Uh, and, you know, if you think about all the vaccines out there that are being advanced, uh, it's essentially the same payload that they're delivering. If you think of sort of a, a chassis for a vehicle, what goes on the vehicle, that's the same. It's the spike protein of the, of the virus that latches onto your lung cells. What's different with the different vaccines is that platform. And our platform is like a soccer ball in that it has multiple faces on it, mm -hmm. about 24. And the spike protein goes on those 24 faces. When you present something like that to the immune system, the vaccine is basically teaching the immune system how to fight off the infection without getting the infection. When you present that spike protein multiple times around in a small space, that tends to boost immunity. And the benefit of this also is that you can mix and match different coronavirus proteins so that if this coronavirus mutates or we want to address other coronaviruses, known or unknown in the future, we can put the spike proteins from those other coronaviruses to make mm. a pan universal vaccine. That's really fascinating because obviously I mean, there are other coronaviruses and there likely will be new coronaviruses that you know, we as of yet do not know about. Um, Dr. Yeah. Fauci has said that given the, the circumstances, he'll, quote, settle for a, vac a vaccine that's 70 to 75 percent effective, but also raises the point that there's a large percentage of the American population that's, you know, anti-science, anti-authority and anti-vaccine. I'm using the words of Dr. Fauci. In order for a vaccine to work, how effective does it need to be and how many people or percentage of people actually receive it? It all depends on what your purpose, your intent is. Are you trying to decrease the number of infections? Are you trying to mitigate the disease severity? Um, there are different endpoints for different vaccines. Mm -hmm. Viruses that are transmitted more easily, like SARS-CoV-2, the, the virus that causes COVID-19, you need a higher proportion of people who are vaccinated 
to completely interrupt transmission. We see with measles, when vaccine coverage goes down just a little bit, you get these outbreaks. So we don't know exactly what coverage you'll need to completely stop transmission, but even a, a vaccine that is somewhat effective and even taken by a proportion of the population is gonna have some impact. And it's better to have some impact than nothing in our tool shed at all. Yeah, and you talked about the, the long war. It, by that you mean other coronaviruses that are out there and others that may are yet to come. Yeah, this is the seventh coronavirus that has been identified as infecting humans. Five of those seven have been identified since 2003 with SARS-1. I don't, you know, there's no reason to think that, you know, things are accelerating. They are not decelerating. So there's no reason mm -hmm. to think that another one is not coming or that this may not become a seasonal issue with this coronavirus. Yeah. Well, Dr. Mujarad, I appreciate all, all you're doing, uh, all you and your colleagues are, are, are doing uh, at Walter Reed. Thank you so much for, for all your work and thanks for being with us tonight. Thank you for having me on. All right. Up next, breaking news, details on yet another tell-all book about President Trump, this one by his niece, Mary, that the family unsuccessfully tried to block. Journalists today got a, their hands on a copy of the new book by President Trump's niece, Mary Trump, who has her Ph.D. in clinical psychology and accuses her uncle of being a, quote, sociopath. The book is called Too Much and Never Enough, How My Family Created the World's Most Dangerous Man, and his publication date was moved up until next week from a date in late July. You might remember the president's younger brother tried to stop publication of the book, but an appeals court lifted the temporary restraining order issued by a lower court. Among those who have read it, reported on it, is Maggie Haberman, White House correspondent for the New York Times and a CNN political analyst. So, Maggie, the, the, this book, you've seen it. There are a lot of sort of notable passages already uh, online. One, she writes that, that Donald Trump hired and paid for someone to take his SATs uh, for him, yeah. writing that he enlisted, quote, a smart kid with a good reputation of being a good test taker. We should mention that the White House has released a statement denying this. Uh, what did you make of, of what's coming out of this book? Look, I think a few things, Anderson. I, I think certainly the SAT anecdote is very interesting, and with any other president, it would be mind-blowing. But in terms of the things that this president has been accused of or, or actually done over time, um, it, it, is, it is sort of uh, smaller by comparison. Look, she paints a pretty dark portrait uh, of, of her uncle. She paints a pretty dark portrait of her grandfather and describes him as the person who made her uncle the way he is. She describes her grandfather as a sociopath. Um, there is a lot of uh, telling and not showing. There are some sort of sweeping statements that aren't always backed up by anecdotes. Uh, clearly, some of this was not her direct knowledge. She was hearing it from other family members. But she does talk about, for instance, conversations she had with the president's sister, Marianne, where Marianne was very dismissive of her brother during the campaign, described him as a quote-unquote clown, got upset that her brother the president was talking about their late brother, Mary Trump's father, who died uh, of alcoholism-related uh, illness um, and who had combated alcoholism for a long time and was, was really sort of brutalized by their father, according to Mary Trump and in part by the president. Um, she was very angry that President Trump was talking about the memory of Freddie Trump during the campaign, saying essentially that he was using him. Overall, in the aggregate, it's going to be a pretty familiar picture to people who have read other books about this president. Um, what's different is this is a family member. It's also interesting just the, you know, what she says about the relationship between 
uh, Donald Trump and his father. Um, she, she writes at one point, Donald's pathologies are so complex and his behavior so often inexplicable that coming up with an accurate and comprehensive diagnosis would require a full battery of psychological and neuropsychological tests that he'll never sit for. Um, you know, others have called him a, a sociopath. A lot of, you know, doctors, I think, signed a letter saying, saying that to that effect. She actually does have a PhD in, in, uh, in psychology. But the relationship uh, of how she says that, uh, her grandfather kind of created Donald Trump in this mm -hmm. image is fascinating. It is. And look, for, for people who have known that family for uh, a while, that is what everyone has said, is that essentially Fred Trump created his son, that there was this competition for Fred Trump's affection, or affection is the wrong word, but for his attention. Um, and basically, Mary Trump describes her uncle as, uh, you know, as in a state of arrested development emotionally, constantly still trying to get love and attention from a father who couldn't do it or just was not able to, and a mother who uh, had a variety of illnesses and wasn't really able to. Um, again, I, I think that for people who are interested in where the president comes from, there's a very New York feel about the book. She talks about a famous steakhouse in Brooklyn um, that the family would go to, things Peter like Luger's. that. I, I, think I that saw that you tweet about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm Peter, Peter Luger. But, um, but and I, I think that there are people who, placing Donald Trump at a certain place in time in New York, I think will find this interesting. Um, but again, I think in terms of the overall portrait of of who he is, um, I, I think it 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 adds to a, a pretty broad uh, yeah. group already. Mary Trump writes about how Donald Trump was able to avoid contempt from his father, which was by doing his bidding for him, and that Fred mm -hmm. Fred Trump Sr., as we said, was this, uh, she says was a sociopath who co-opted his son to reach his own ends, which is pretty consistent, as you said, what what people have said about him. It's also fascinating how you know, th that the father obviously had a lot to do with the son's success early on and kind of funding it and how Donald Trump moved from, you know, Queens to, you know, he, he had his eyes on Manhattan from a young age and that's where he wanted to kind of make his mark different from his father. He wanted to make his mark different from his father, but he also remember part of Donald Trump's self-portrait that is not true is that he is basically the self-made man who got a quote-unquote small $1 million loan from his father. My colleagues in reporting in 2018 demonstrated exactly how not true that was. Uh, he is was heavily reliant on Fred Trump, and I, part of the point that Mary Trump makes in this book is the whole family was. They all were. Everybody's everybody's money in some way or another descended from Fred Trump. And that is the portrait she paints. Hmm. Maggie Haberman, appreciate it. Thank you very much. Up next, he downplayed coronavirus as a, quote, little flu. Now Brazil's president admits he has tested positive for the virus. What else he revealed when we come back? Think about your home for a moment. It's where life happens. It's where you build that treehouse or try that new recipe. It's where you rest and recharge, work and play. You expect a lot out of it. And that's why HomeAdvisor is committed to keeping your home up and running, no matter what. They match you with the best pros in your area. Pros who can get your home projects done right. From unexpected jobs like appliance repairs, clogged gutters, and leaky faucets, to projects you actually look forward to, like creating your very own backyard summer retreat or getting that new pool installed. Whatever it is, they're here to help. And the HomeAdvisor app makes it easy. Use it to book and pay for more than 100 projects with just a few taps. Plus, if you're looking for some local inspiration, you can see trending tasks in your neighborhood. 
So whether you need a last-minute fix, routine home maintenance, or an exciting new upgrade, HomeAdvisor is here, ready to do everything to fix your everything. Download the HomeAdvisor app and get started today. Despite his months of downplaying the virus, Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro said today he has come down with COVID-19. He made the announcement on on Brazilian television. He said he went to a hospital to receive a lung scan. He says it will not hold, he will not hold any in-person meetings in the near future. Uh, not sure how this will affect his attitude toward uh, the pandemic, which has been ravaging uh, Brazil. Time now to check in with Chris, see what he's working on for Cuomo Prime Time. Chris? None of us is immune. I mean, that's the sad reality. Uh, the virus is the only constant. And just wait until we find out how long a tail this tornado has. I'm telling you, I'm still not right. A lot of people have had this virus unless it's a light case and they get lucky. But even my wife, she had a light case, but then her lack of uh, taste and smell, not taste in men, her lack of sense of taste. (laughs) Coop, I know what you were thinking. Uh, But that just started coming back uh, last week again. We don't know what we don't know about this virus. So we have to take it very seriously. And let's be honest, this country isn't doing it on the levels that matter most. So tonight, uh, with the president saying, hey, schools, they've got to open. I'm going to pressure them. Now, we've seen this game uh, before. He did it with reopening. He did it with testing. He did it with PPE. I'm going to make it happen. Oh, but it's a state issue. Same thing with schools. So we're bringing in teachers from Florida because that's not just the biggest hotspot that we're tracking with cases. They want to reopen schools in like a month just when they're getting at their worst in terms of cases. Got the head of the teachers union to talk about the realities and what they need to go back to work. Hmm. All right, Chris, look forward to that. That's about five minutes from now. See you then. Coming up next, we remember some of the victims of this pandemic, including a doctor who was on the front lines. Tonight, we remember more lives lost from the coronavirus. Stephen Cooper was a New Yorker who grew up in Queens. On the morning of September 11, 2001, he was making a delivery in Lower Manhattan when the towers were hit. Police officer told everyone on the street to run. Stephen was captured in this famous photograph. He's on the left in the black shirt, running away as the towers collapsed. He was covered from head to toe in soot and ash after he ran, but he survived. And he never even realized he was in that photo until weeks later. His partner said for a long time he kept that photo in his wallet. He was admitted to the hospital in March. He died five days later. It was only after his death that he tested positive for the virus. Stephen Cooper was 78 years old, and he will be missed. Dr. Stephen Kamholtz was the chairman of medicine at the Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn. When the pandemic hit, the patients started flooding in. Doctors and nurses at his hospital were also getting infected. But Dr. Cam Hulse, he never even considered not going to work. That's the kind of person he was. Because of his age, he was in a high-risk group. But his family says he would never ask his staff to assume the risk of catching the virus without assuming the risk himself. In April, he tested positive and then became a patient in his own hospital. But he kept on working, teaching doctors and nurses from his hospital bed on how best to treat virus patients. He died eight weeks after contracting the virus. Dr. Stephen Kamholtz was 72 years old. Our thoughts go out to every family that's been impacted by this virus. The news continues now. I want to hand it over to Chris for Cuomo Primetime.